online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Mango farmers in Australia's north hit with new treatment requirements for exports to stop the spread of fruit fly. Costs of some of these treatments can go up to $7 a tray, which a lot of growers are just struggling to, to clear a few dollars a tray after cost. So, And that does affect... Tassie people, so stay with us to find out more. And scientists working on half a million dollar project to halve the growth time of one of Tassie's valuable crops. Currently it takes about 18 months from sowing to flowering and the industry have an aim to decrease that to about 10 to 12 months. Hello, I'm Fiona Breen. Thanks for joining me this lunchtime. We're also going to look at some big sales of dairy land in Victoria. The prices are extraordinary. Line Court Barramundi and a dung beetle surprise and wine grape prices. But first, some very important information. ABC Radio Emergency Information. And there is a bushfire watch and act Portal Road, Brady's Lake and Surrounds. Prepare to leave if you're in that area. This is a bushfire watch and act message for Portal Road, Brady's Lake and Surrounds. Prepare to leave. This fire may impact those roads, Portal Road, Brady's Lake and Surrounds by 4pm. The fire is travelling towards Brady's Lake and it's expected to be difficult to control. Embers, smoke and ash may fall on Portal Road, Brady's Lake and surrounds. The Tasmania Fire Service, Sustainable Timber Tasmania and Parks and Wildlife are attending and conditions are expected to be changeable. Now, here's what you should do. Take action now to protect yourself your family and your home. If you are not prepared for a bushfire, be ready to leave for a safer place. If you have made a bushfire plan, check it now. If you don't live near Portal Road, Brady's Lake and surrounds, stay away. For fire updates, listen to ABC Local Radio. We have another update at 12.30 and also visit the TAS alert.com website if you're able to. Now back to rural news. Uh, You may have heard or seen stories about wine grape growers in South Australia's Riverland receiving really low prices for their fruit, down to $120 a tonne. The historically low prices come as the industry there struggles with a red wine glut changing consumer habits and China's tariffs. So what's going to happen in Tassie? Will wine grape growers suffer here as well? I thought we'd get in the experts. We've got uh, Wine Tasmania Shirley Davies to help talk through the implications. Good afternoon, Shirley. Hello, Fiona. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining the Country Hour. First of all, it doesn't sound great for wine grape growers in the Riverland in South Australia. Absolutely. And our our sympathies are with our colleagues in interstate uh, regions that are really doing it very tough 
Uh, it is um, it is a really sad situation for us to watch, and we're we're certainly thinking of our colleagues there. Uh, I guess if we turn our focus to what's happening here in Tasmania, it might be useful to just perhaps understand that we we really have two distinct segments in the Australian wine sector. We have uh, what's called the commercial wine sector, which is basically wines that are grown and produced that retail below the equivalent of $10 a bottle. Uh, that's really where we're seeing a lot of Australian wine production and certainly some of those warmer inland areas that we're talking about are in that commercial wine sort of space. And then, of course, you have the premium wine segment. And for any of any of the listeners uh, who enjoy our local wines, they would well understand that Tasmania is very firmly in that premium wine sector. What we're seeing in terms of commercial wines is that not just Australia, but the entirety of the world, there are a lot of other countries that produce these commercial wines, are producing more than we actually have customers globally. So you're enjoy. talking about wines that retail for ten dollars or under. Correct. That's correct. Okay. So we, these are big lots of wine that big big volumes um, at that lower value. There's nothing wrong with these wines. Uh, obviously, there's uh, there's incredible value for consumers at those price points. But it is a very different segment of the market, and uh, and there are just not enough customers to continue to support that. Plus, it's difficult for Australia to be competitive. Um, b- if we look at some of the other countries that are involved in that space. So what's the difference then between, uh, well, with those wines? I mean, are they using different grapes, different techniques for, for making their wine? I mean, it must be mass production to get them down to retail at $10 a bottle or whatever. Yeah, look, it's it's certainly um, much larger scale. Uh, uh, so, yeah, much bigger volume, much lower uh, value. There is certainly a quality uh, quality consideration there as well. We obviously talk about premium wines as, as being of superior quality. A lot of it does come down to climate. Um, we're obviously founded in agriculture, so where you are, the climate and everything that surrounds uh, the growing of your grapes has a huge impact on the quality there. So predominantly we are talking about warmer regions and certainly much warmer than what we have here in Tasmania. But it is about three quarters of Australia's wine production comes wow. in that commercial space. In that so, commercial space. Wow. Yeah. 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 So it sounds like there's, there's, there will be some sort of change because this uh, story, which came from South South Australia, our rural reporters there, it sounds like there's a few people actually thinking of getting out of growing uh, wine grapes there. It look, yeah, look, it, it, it sounds to me as well as though it's about as bad as it's ever been. I mean, the wine sector um, globally does go through some level of uh, cycles, but uh, this sounds like it's it's really crunch time for a lot of those families that are growing grapes in those areas. Well, they're reporting prices as low as $120 a tonne for wine grapes. What are the sort of prices we can expect here for our wine grapes per tonne? Because often they go to different, you know, makers and winemakers and et cetera. Yeah, that's right. So um, it's a completely different scenario as perhaps you would anticipate. Um, There is some, so each year there's data captured on uh, actual transactions, so grapes that have been bought and sold. So it's not the full picture necessarily for Tasmania. We know that our grapes sell well below the average numbers that we 
we actually have access to. But even looking at the average, uh, last vintage we were selling uh, on average uh, $3,200 wow. per tonne of grapes. So you can see how… So $3,200 per tonne. Correct. Yes. Correct. Oh, so that's it's, pretty good. <laughs> it is. And as I said, that's uh, that's just the average based on recorded uh, transactions. I think um, there's certainly evidence that our wine grapes are selling much higher than that per tonne as well. So, so and these are sort of cool, mainly cool climate grapes, aren't they? Correct. Yep. So again, agriculture and viticulture particularly is very, very sensitive to, to temperature and to weather conditions. So um, we are in the right place basically in the world, I mean certainly in the country but in the world, to be crafting these amazing cool climate grape varieties. So for us, the focus is very much on Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and uh, Pinot Gris. Um, but also importantly, even as though it's not a great variety in its own right, we look at sparkling wine as a style, and that's predominantly derived from Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but um, they are kind of our, our top four, four varieties and styles, and that differs quite significantly from what the rest of the country is focused on, where it is predominantly a red wine focus. Shiraz is the most uh, most grown um, grape variety, followed by Chardonnay, followed by Cab- Cabernet, so quite a different I mean, mm. you, they could barely be more different, I think okay. it's fair to say. Interesting. So we're picking at the moment or early, would they be sparkling sort of Chardonnay grapes? or Correct. So uh, our very first grapes were harvested last week on the 14th of February. And uh, if you've been past or visited any vineyards recently, you'd see there's quite a lot of activity as the nets are going onto our vineyards to protect every precious grape from those, uh, Keep those our, birds away. Our <laughs> avian friends, exactly right. Um, so yes, uh, starting to harvest, we'll really get underway in earnest. Uh, over the next few weeks and we expect to be harvesting through March and into April um, and all of that's dependent, of course, on exactly what weather we we experience over that period of time. Cross fingers, cross fingers. Now, I have heard that we're doing more uh, machine harvesting, you know, because we do do a bit of hand harvesting. That's very, uh, uh, takes a lot of staff, a lot of workers, and, but we're able to keep the quality with, with the machine harvesting these days? Yeah, that's correct. Certainly uh, some of the newer vineyards that have been planted are at a, a larger scale than probably what we've seen in the past. Our average vineyard size has been sort of uh, five hectares, which is reasonably modest, and we're now seeing some newer plantings that might be 30, 40 hectares. So um, uh, it's not necessarily possible to get around with hand harvesting to get those grapes off when they need to be harvested. So um, there's some incredible harvesters uh, you'll see around the state now which are incredibly precise and able to make sure that the quality is absolutely sound. Most, The majority of our vineyards are still hand harvesting, but uh, but we're certainly seeing some of that, uh, that automated or me- mechanised harvesting coming into the Tasmanian wine sector. The tech's always improving. I did see one parked... Somewhere the other day, up in the Duant Valley, I think, yeah. Uh, no, not the Duant Valley. It must Maybe have been the East Coast East or Coast, somewhere, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, there's a, there's a few. Ready to go, yes. And the technology is incredible. I mean, the technology is moving so very quickly and anything that we can do um, to help from a quality but also from a productivity perspective we'll look at. In fact, we've just recently undertaken some major research to look at where the Tasmanian wine sector might be in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. We know right now we're in an incredibly strong position um, on every measure uh, we're performing so well and obviously very differently to our, our friends interstate. But we also know we're growing. And so as we grow, we know that our things like our labour needs are only get, going to get higher. So continuing to look at 
technology, continuing to look at how we can uh, how we can can sort of improve and learn and grow in the future is a key part of what we want to and need to do. Fantastic. We'll be keen to hear about that at another time. Now, just finally, uh, demand for grapes is still high. Um, do people sort of pre- pre-buy them or pre-contract them or how does it work? And yeah. do we have enough? Yes. So, uh, well, we've. I, I should actually, given that we've just harvested, I should just give you an, a snapshot. Yep. Quality is looking excellent. Yes. Quantity um, is not going to break any records, but it, we are currently expecting to harvest more grapes this year than we did last year. But as a consequence of having um, modest yields over the past few years, demand continues to outstrip what we can supply. So um, a lot of growers have contracts for their fruits. Some others um, offer it just on a on a vintage by vintage basis. But we, we do indeed know that there's more demand for wine grapes out of Tasmania than we can currently satisfy. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Cheryl Davies. Thanks so much for, for joining us on The Country Hour. Always great to hear what's happening in the wine sector and with grapes, etc. Glad it's a different story here to our um, – I'm a bit sad for the Riverland growers. But uh, we'd love to catch up with you a bit further into the grape harvesting season and make sure nobody lights any fires. We exactly any right. smoke tape. And buy local. That's buy my last local. call. <laughs> buy local, definitely. Thanks, Fiona. All right. Thanks, Cheryl It's the Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, yesterday, Woolworths Group CEO Brad Banducci quit with Amanda Bardwell promoted to the top job. This came after ABC's Four Corners aired footage of Mr Banducci walking out of an interview as the company faces allegations of price gouging and unfair practices with suppliers. Amid all this controversy, the company also released its half-year results, which we only touched on briefly. Woolies posted a $781 million loss, but the food division performed very well for Woolworths. Emma Field has the story. It was an extraordinary piece of television to watch the man who'd led Woolworths for almost nine years walking out of a Four Corners interview after implying the former HCC chairman Rod Sims' view about supermarket concentration was untrue, and Mr Banducci also mentioned that he was now retired. Well, can we take that out? Is that OK? Sorry, let's just keep going. Um, so Are we going to... You know, let's, let's move on, but... Yeah, yeah no, um, I'm, I think I'm done, guys. But, you know. Just hours after the company announced Mr Banducci would relinquish the top job, Woolworths chairman Scott Perkins paid tribute to the CEO at an investor briefing on their half-year results and indicated his departure was nothing to do with the recent controversies. It is natural to reflect on what he's achieved and it is remarkable. The board is is thrilled with Amanda's forthcoming appointment. In the middle of last year, we decided to move into a different phase and commence the planning for CEO succession with today's date in mind. And he wasn't the only one singing his praises. David Errington from the Bank of America also spoke highly of Mr Banducci's leadership. I think you've been a wonderful CEO for Woolworths. I mean, when you inherited Woolworths, it was a basket case. And more importantly, what you've done is you've not only turned this business around to be back to where it normally should be as a leading supermarket business, 
but you've also got humility into the company. Previously, the management was very arrogant. That was on the public record. I think you even admitted that. And what you've done as a CEO is you've actually brought back humility into Woolworths, which I've really enjoyed. So I've really enjoyed you as a CEO and, you know, you've been responsive to any challenge come your way. So congratulations and I hope your legacy goes very, very, very warmly. Woolworths' results for the six months to the end of December 2023 saw the company post a $781 million loss due to two major write-downs. But its underlying profits are up, driven by sales and profit margin gains in online groceries. Food sales rose by more than 5% and profit margin on Australian groceries increased by 0.24 of a percentage point. Price increases in excess of rising costs totaled more than $60 million of extra profits on sales of just under $26 billion from its food sales division. Outgoing CEO Brad Banducci says its retail prices in its food business dropped, led by fruit and vegetables. Importantly for our customers, fruit and veg average prices declined by 6.4% in Q2, which was driven in particular by an improvement in availability, including an increased supply of berries, capsicums and zucchinis. He also pointed out Woolies retail meat prices dropped 7% for the six months, And it's worth noting, from July to October, the Eastern Young Cattle Index slumped 37% before rising into December to be down 17% across the same period. Meat, red meat that is, was the other major contributor, uh, with prices declining 7.2% in Q2 as beef and lamb stock, livestock prices softened. We are seeing the number of supply increases requests reduce significantly compared to prior periods. However, they they do still remain above pre-COVID levels. Costs in Woolworths food business increased by 9.2% and was the focus of a lot of questions from investors. The company says just over 6% of this was due to wage increases plus volume growth and other expansion projects. However, Mr Banducci says transport costs also grew. The issue we're still having is, is really disruption costs that are still flowing through. But as hopefully those somewhat we get better at managing those, you will see quite a lot of nice leverage come out of it. And Annette, I'm looking at you as I talk. Uh, and hopefully the cost that we're all dealing with right now is elevated transportation costs. Uh, and that's on the back of retaining truck drivers as well as fuel. So hopefully we'll start to see that, that balance off. And speaking of the supply chain, Mr Banducci also gave some details of three warehouses the company bought from Scott's Refrigeration Logistics, which collapsed in March last year, leaving 1,500 staff without a job and concerns about the supply to supermarkets and small retailers. We took over three of the old Scott's warehouses when uh, the business went into uh, administration. Those businesses have now been, or those warehouses have been effectively onboarded into our platform and uh, we're continuing to engage and grow uh, capacity into those. And we, uh, with over 900 suppliers and carrier partners, onboarded onto our digital platform during, during the half. And that was Woolworths Group CEO Brad Banducci there, who will leave the company in September, but will still be at the company to front a Senate inquiry into supermarket prices.
Tasmania Votes 2024. I don't think we need a stadium. Join Leon Compton and the Mornings team on the road at Glebe Hill in the seat of Franklin as we cross the state to get a feel for what you think the issues are that will decide your vote in the state election. Build a stadium, build things. The candidates, the issues and you. We need the ferry. Leon Compton on the road this Tuesday morning from 8.30. Get on with it. Tasmania Votes 2024 from ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. As of today, the mango industry will no longer be allowed to use methyl bromide to control fruit flies. The decision follows research into the chemical, which indicated it was not suitable for mangoes and did not provide sufficient control for Queensland fruit fly. As a result, the fruit fly-free states of South Australia, Tasmania and Western Australia have updated their import conditions to no longer accept mangoes that have used this treatment. And the same ban will be enforced on plums next month. Leo Scaleros is the president of the Northern Territory Mango Industry Association. Well, basically... um Last year we had Demethwaite come off the label and our option going into Western Australia was uh, methyl bromide. That was then had some tests done and uh, found that it wasn't an effective treatment on mangoes and plums uh, in controlling fruit fly. So that's now been taken off the label and we're looking for alternative forms of treatments for entry into this, some states. So the industry lost the ability to use dimethylate as a post-harvest treatment. A lot of growers then went and grabbed some methyl bromide, and now, as of today, uh, that's been banned. So what are the alternatives from here, Leo? Uh, well, we have, we have uh, CTMO1, which is field sprays, with uh, the methylate and uh, hard green protocol for South Australia. So that, that's not too much of an issue. Uh, entry into Western Australia is a, a larger issue and we have irradiation and vapour heat treatment currently and the department and industry is, is looking to get CTMO1 passed for Western Australia, but that might take some time. I guess you're hoping that's all organised in time for the next mango season. Yes, definitely. Well, the other the other two forms are, are uh, an expensive treatment and it also some transport logistics there will will cause large dramas trying to tr- trying to swing fruit around the place. So in terms of the bottom line for mango growers, how big of a deal is it to lose first dimethylate as a post-harvest treatment and now to lose methyl bromide? Well, I mean, costs of some of these treatments can go up to $7 a tray, which a lot of growers are just struggling to, to clear uh, a few dollars a tray after cost. So it will make the, them unviable basically to run. And uh, if they can't go into these other states, then they'll have to send the fruit across to other states that, um, that don't require entry for fruit fly. 
which will cause basically a glut in the market and drop the market prices. So, A lot of mangoes uh, go into New South Wales and, and Victoria and, and not much go into, say, WA. Yes, and Queensland as well. So they, they all have the, the fruit fly of concern. So, so we don't need any protocols to enter those states. Do you think there will be growers that will put Western Australia in particular in the too hard basket? Most definitely. Most definitely, especially if it'll be a you know, five to seven dollar cost treatment or they'll have to move fruit from Darwin down to Victoria and then across to Western Australia. At least this ban comes in today, late February, at the end of the, the national mango season. Is that is that at least something that you've got quite a few months now to, to work De- this out? Definitely. Definitely a much better outcome. And uh, we have a few a few teams working hard on trying to get um, things passed, as well as the irradiation plants and vapour heat treatment plants um, looking, looking to help industry out if worse comes to worse and, and we can't get CTMO1 passed for Western Australia. And that was Leo Skiloris, who is the president of the Northern Territory Mango Association. And Biosecurity Tasmania has revoked that use of methyl bromide as a treatment option for Queensland fruit fly. Uh, the amem- they've amended the import requirements. So uh, we've requested that someone from Biosecurity Tasmania join us on the program to sort of let us know how that affects mangoes coming into the state and what it means for us, the consumers. It's hope we can get some more information in the next day or so. So make sure you keep listening to us. But first, we now have some important information. ABC Radio Emergency Information. This is a bushfire watch and act message for D, Brady's Lake, Taralea and surrounds. Prepare to leave. This fire may impact D, Brady's Lake, Taralea and surrounds by 4pm. The fire is travelling towards... Bear with me for a minute. The fire is travelling towards Brady's Lake. The fire is expected to be difficult to control. Embers, smoke and ash may fall on D, Brady's Lake, Taralea and surrounds. Tasmania Fire Service, Sustainable Timber Tasmania and Parks and Wildlife Service is attending. Conditions are expected to be changeable. Now here's what to do. Take action now to protect yourself your family and your home. If you're not prepared for a bushfire, be ready to leave for a safer place. If you have made a bushfire plan, check it now. If you don't live near D, Brady's Lake, Taralea and surrounds, please stay away. There's also a bushfire advice for Mentmore Road, D and surrounds. Prepare now. Now, this is a bushfire advice advice message for Mentmore Road D. Prepare now. There is no immediate threat for Mentmore Road in D and D. The fire is travelling towards Brady's Lake. Tasmania Fire Service is attending. Conditions are expected to be changeable. What to do? 
If you have a bushfire plan, check it now. Well-prepared homes are expected to be defendable in these conditions, monitor conditions, and if they get more dangerous and you are not well-prepared, plan to go to a safer place. For fire updates, continue to listen to ABC Local Radio or visit thetasalert.com. We'll bring you alerts as they come to hand. Uh, the next planned one is for one fifteen. This week on Landline, from a failed hazelnut venture to a golden opportunity to grow Australia's appetite for pistachios. Good growth of the last six years since we started our nursery. And the dairy farmers getting out of their comfort zones to shine a light on mental health. There's a lot of soul searching inside a tractor by yourself wondering, you know, how am I going to get out of all this? That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Keeping you updated every day. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen. Time now to head to the Weather Bureau and Brooke Oakley from the Bureau of Meteorology. Good afternoon, Brooke. Good afternoon, Fiona. Now, I know there's been rain overnight. Well, I think there has. It certainly was yesterday and we're still recovering. So did you have some more big totals? Well, there was some very localised heavy rainfall over the St Helens area yesterday with slow-moving thunderstorms. And in the 48 hours to 9am this morning, there was a total of 147 millimetres of rain recorded. And 55 millimetres of that rain was in only one hour around the middle of the day. So some very heavy rainfall for the Beaumaris, Scamander and St Helens area. And that did cause some localised flooding and damage that is still being cleaned up today. Elsewhere around the state, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, the next highest rainfall total was 18 millimetres at Mount Victoria, followed by 10 millimetres at St Patrick's Head. So that just shows how localised that heavy rainfall was. There were also a few showers about inland parts of the north as well, but generally below 5 millimetres of rain. In addition to that heavy rainfall, the other... The other main story is how hot it's getting. So it was hot yesterday, particularly in the south and west, where several sites had their highest maximum temperature this summer, including Hobart with 31.4 degrees and Strawn with 30.3 degrees. It was also very warm overnight last night, with much of the state remaining above 20 degrees all night, and Launceston equaled its highest minimum temperature on record with 21.1 degrees. And for wow. today, the, uh, yeah, very hot. And for today, that is the main story. Very hot today with extreme fire danger. So there is a fire weather warning current for today for extreme fire danger for the East Coast, Midlands, Upper Derwent Valley and South East districts. And other districts are mostly rated at high as well. And these elevated fire dangers are due to very hot, dry and windy conditions today. The northwesterly winds have started to become gusty with gusts around 80 to 90 kilometres per hour. And we're expecting a cool westerly change to reach the west coast around mid-afternoon and then slowly move across Tasmania, not reaching the northeast until night time. 
There is a chance of some thunderstorms about the west and the south this afternoon. If they do occur, they'll be relatively dry and fast moving. Also a chance of thunderstorms about the northeast during the evening, but there won't be rainfall like we saw yesterday, just possible thunderstorms and relatively dry. And then tomorrow the high fire dangers do persist for the eastern half of Tasmania due to dry and windy conditions. The other thing this heat is causing is a severe heat wave warning for the Furneaux Islands, southeast, western, northwest coast and King Island districts. The maximum temperatures will peak today, with the temperatures reaching the high 20s to low 30s for most of the state, and even the mid-30s about the southeast. This is a whopping 10 to 15 degrees above average, and it currently has already reached 31 degrees in Hobart and 33 degrees in King Island and Strawn. And as we start to see some clearer skies, those temperatures are only going to go up even further but it is going to be significantly cooler tomorrow. So the heat wave warning that we have currently covers Tuesday through until today, following the hot temperatures yesterday and overnight and today, but significantly cooler conditions are expected tomorrow with maximum temperatures only reaching the high teens to low 20s, so over 10 degrees colder than today. Wow, goodness. There's a lot going on. Are there any other warnings we need to know about? In addition to the fire weather warning and the severe heat wave warning, there is also a strong wind warning current for eastern, southern and western coastal waters from St Helens Point to Stanley, also the southwest lakes and all southeast inshore waters except the channel. And then tomorrow, a gale warning for southern coastal waters from Tasman Island to Low Rocky Point and a strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters. Okay, Uh, any more on coastal waters? So if we look a little bit more closely at the coastal waters, today northerly winds at at 20 to 30 knots, although only 10 to 20 knots in the central north. Those winds are shifting west to northwesterly at 15 to 25 knots from the west during the afternoon and evening and reaching up to 30 knots in the south. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of one to two metres, and the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 1.5 metres. In the north, a northeasterly below one metre, and in the east, a northeasterly of one to two metres and a southerly below one metre. For tomorrow, west to southwesterly winds of 20 to 30 knots, reaching up to 35 knots in the south. The swells increase dramatically. So in the west and south, we have westerly 4.5 to 5.5 metres developing during the morning and then building further to 5.5 to 6.5 metres during the afternoon. In the north, a westerly of 1.5 to 2.5 metres developing during the day. In the east, a northeasterly of 1 to 2 metres decaying in the evening, and also a southerly below 1 metre, but southwesterly 1 to 3 metres developing offshore in the south. But at least the good news is that more settled and mild weather is expected to follow for the weekend and into early next week. Fantastic. Brooke Oakley, what a fantastic report. You can you can actually have a breath now. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Thanks very much. We'll catch you again next time. Thank you. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
Now, a block of land in southwest Victoria has sold for the eye-watering sum of almost $56,000 a hectare or $22,550 an acre. The 51-hectare dairy runoff property uh, east of Warrnambool sold to a local dairy farming family. Auctioneer Rob Rickard from Elders Real Estate says it's the highest price he's seen in the district. I had a good crowd of local people, so um, talking to one of the uh, locals prior to the auction, it was the first auction he can remember in, in over 30 years held in the Mapunga, um, Mapunga West region. So it was a pretty exciting day for the local community and um, held on site a really, really appealing bit of land, just um, 10 or 15 minutes just out of the regional centre of Warrnambool heading to the east. And, um, yeah, purchased by a local dairy farmer for 22550 an acre. Pretty big result or a very big result. And, um, you know, then they had to buy the water on top of that price, which was another $3,500 a megalitre. So in total, it was a, a very big result for ourselves and importantly for our vendors. And that figure, Rob, $22,500 an acre, I mean, how much of an outlier is that? Is it a, a record for the district? Yeah, look, I mean, I don't like sort of going on too much about records, but I can't recall, and I, yeah, I haven't spoken to anybody that's had a, a sale at that level in the district before, particularly for land that is zoned rural, so there's no upside as far as, um, you know, opportunity for subdivision, so it's purely rural land going to be used as a dairy out paddock, um, but it does, you know, it's an exceptional bit of dirt and it does have the opportunity to irrigate. So I suppose there is, you know, the chance that it could be converted at some stage to perhaps a, another land use, whether it be horticulture or more intensive agriculture. Um, but the people who were successful in buying the property, it will be just used as a traditional young stock, dry cow and fodder sort of uh, conservation block, I would suggest. So sometimes when we get these out-of-the-box sales, there are there are some extenuating circumstances circumstances attached, maybe a historic property or historic homestead or stud or something like that, but but in this case it, it's purely about the dirt? Yeah, purely about the dirt and, and its location. I think it's a you know, as I said, it's only a bit over 10 minutes out of the regional centre of Warrnambool, so I think it's that's probably adds to the attraction. Um, it is a, an area that's always very, very tightly contested and um, it's highly regarded and, and probably surprised me when, when a local farmer did come up to me and suggest that he couldn't remember an auction in the last 30 years in Mapunga because I think any property I'd be selling at Mapunga, I would auction for that reason you know, it is regarded as, as, as high-quality land and it's very tightly held. How many bidders were there? There was only, uh, there was only the two bidders. We started bidding at 12000 an acre and, um, yeah, two bidders were on the... Yeah, they, they led the race the whole way. There was really nobody else got an opportunity to bid. And, Rob, in recent years we've had huge jumps in in land values but just anecdotally it seems more recently uh, perhaps with the rising interest rates etc uh, that's cooled off a little bit perhaps maybe a little bit of a correction or, or maybe just getting a little harder to sell properties but uh, not in this case. You know it's as reliable as dairy countries you'd find anywhere in Australia I would suggest in our southwest of Victoria and um, you know, at the moment, the, the dairy industry is ticking along pretty well. The milk price is as good as it's ever been. 
we've had um, you know three yeah three good seasons really in a row. Um, we've had another terrific sort of spring summer period. Um, they're fairly optimistic about about land and about their industry, and um, you know that's probably um, a reflection the dairy industry being so strong on land values. We've had, I think now there's been um, four sales that I can recall that have sort of been in that fifteen to $20,000 per acre within sort of 10 minutes of this property just over the last three or four months. So, you know, the dairy industry is uh, responding well to the, the milk price they're receiving and uh, that's reflecting in land values. And that's something we need to look at for Tasmania as well um, to see what sort of prices we're getting here. But that was Elders Auctioneer Rob Rickard speaking with Angus Verley and he was talking about some land prices in southwest Victoria. Now, have you ever wished you could make your favourite flowers bloom a little bit quicker? Well, farmers who grow pyrethrum have to wait 18 months before the flowers are ready. But maybe not in the future. Dr. Tamika Pierce is using a half-million-dollar scholarship to work out how it can be grown in half the time. So I received an ARC Early Career Industry Fellowship uh, to work with Botanical Resources Australia, who grow all of Tasmania's pyrethrum. And we're working on a project together to try and shorten the amount of time it takes to grow pyrethrum in Tasmania. So currently it takes about 18 months from sowing to flowering and the industry have an aim to decrease that to about 10 to 12 months. So nearly half. Yep, so nearly half. And that has big implications for growers. It means that they have less amount of time to control disease and weeds, which can be problematic, but also allows them to grow an extra crop in the time when they would usually have pyrethrum in the ground. So how do you do that? I guess that's what you're studying, but have you got any ideas? Uh, So... At the moment we have some plants that naturally flower early, so our aim is to try and really understand why they're flowering early. Um, We know that pyrethrum needs a cold period to flower, so that's called vernalisation and happens in the winter, but we believe that there's a pathway that occurs before that where they need to um, go through almost like a puberty process where they transition from being juvenile to adult, Um, and when they're adult they can then respond to that vernalisation and flower. So really try and understand that pathway um, to try and work out why they flower when they flower and can we come up with a way to make them flower earlier. Okay, so you're not, you're not mucking around with genetics or anything too much. It's, it's really about breeding? Correct, yes. So no DNA manipulation. It's just about taking plants that naturally flower early and we'll do genetic studies to try and identify when particular genes are switched on and off and try and understand why they're switched on and off and if we can add any particular inputs or conditions that would make them change the way they do that. So you did sort of briefly touch on it before, but why is this helpful? Why is it important? So the pyrethrum industry do need to shorten their growing season to allow them to fit better in with a lot of the other annual crops that we grow. Um, So the main benefits, as I mentioned before, is it means we don't have to control disease and weeds for 18 months. It allows farmers to grow an additional cash crop, such as, say, poppies or peas in that period between August and February when they would usually have pie in the ground. It also allows us to have a physical break in the season when we don't have any pyrethrum in the ground. So that will also be advantageous for disease and weed control as well.
By trying to understand the science behind it, we hope to be able to fast stream that approach, even to the point that we can identify a physical marker. So it might be that um, plants that flower early might have larger leaves or we might be able to measure something in them so that plants can be selected really early in their growing season rather than waiting to flowering time to see if they're going to flower earlier. So it's, a speci- it's not a, a variety of pyrethrum, it's specific, some plants specifically yeah. early. Yeah, so we're not actually sure why they're flowering early, we just know they do, and we also know that it's genetic. Finding the freaks of nature, why they are. <laughs> Correct, yes, but you know, it's often the freaks of nature that allow us to have um, increases in our agriculture sector, so they're very important. Are there further applications of this down the line, just thinking of our changing climate, uh, the more we understand why and when plants flower, the better we are suited to adapt to that? Yeah, potentially. Um, I guess understanding it allows us to look at how changing conditions in the future might impact it. Um, We're also really lucky that in the the DNA space that the technologies that we have access to and the cost of those technologies are dramatically decreasing. So we can do a whole lot more in the molecular space that allow us to understand why plants do what they do. Um, And, you know, our new labs here allow us to do that. We have a lot more greater capacity to do molecular work than we have had previously. And that was Dr. Tamika Pierce. She's a research fellow at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, and she's just received a half-million-dollar Australian Research Council grant for research into pyrethrum to see if she can get them flowering a whole lot earlier. Now, when Julie North and her husband bought their tiny lifestyle farm near Mount Roland a few years ago, they reckoned the land was a bit tired. So they set about trying to restore it, choosing an approach that didn't use herbicides, pesticides and fungicides, letting the weeds grow where they wanted and working out what was needed to rebalance their soil. Just recently, they discovered something pretty exciting. We did, um, so this used to be an old dairy and um, it it hasn't had much life in the soil for a very, very long time. Um, We were going around and doing our usual pig poo collections uh, for our compost and our vermiculture out the back and we turned over one of the paddies in the field and we found an abundance of beetles and we were so excited. We had dung beetles. Um, We've been waiting for them for ages. We thought we were at least another couple of years out of being at that stage where they would come back. Um, apparently it's been quite a few years since they've seen them here in this in this particular property. It was pretty trodden to the ground back in the day being a dairy. Um, but we un- yeah, unearthed this huge nest of larvae and all these tunnels and we were so excited. <laughs> Very exciting. And so you... You'd- I spoke to someone else about it. They, they'd confirmed they hadn't seen it in a while. Or? Yeah, yeah. So I spoke to my neighbour out the front here and she's been here for a very long time. Her dad used to live here in this house um, and he actually built their house for them in the oh. front here. She's lovely and, um, yeah, it's just the ground has been so hard and compacted for years after all the cattle, you know, walking over it and just normal farming practices, I guess. Um, it's just compacted the, the ground so hard we couldn't dig it. Um, and we've just been kind of working away at it for the last couple of years and updating her on our progress as we go. And, you know, um, she's even seen some improvements over at her place since we've been here. Uh, trees fruiting that she hasn't had fruit for a while. Um, and just, yeah, just a total difference, really, in the way that it was before. What are you, what are you doing differently? What are, what's your approach been to encourage <laughs> dung beetles to come back? Um, so we started multi-species cropping. 
Um, we also multi-species graze our animals. We like to have them all together. Um, some people like to separate the pigs from the goats, from the chickens, from the cows, or we just throw them all in at the right time. And they do a really good job of fixing what we really shouldn't be interfering with anyway. Um, you know, they keep our worm count down. Um, pigs are monogastric, so anything that they go along and eat that might contain worm larvae ends up dying mainly in their stomach acids and things like that. The chickens come around and they spread all the all the feces across the pastures for us. They pick out all the pests and the problem species in the ground and we quite happy for them to do that job for us we don't have to spray anything we don't have to weed spray because we just let them grow um, we learn from what's coming up and what our mistakes are the biggest thing was putting in a worm farm they can there's not much they can't do really um, and learning how to grow mushrooms uh, mushroom compost and worm compost together is quite a fantastic duo we just started sprinkling that everywhere really um, and it wasn't any one thing we did in particular it's just a lot of scrambling to see what we could do and what was going to be best I guess um, we couldn't use fertilizers we didn't want to use anything synthetic or anything chemical we couldn't use you know a lot of things um, thistles were everywhere we didn't want to spray them so we just did what we could and three years later we actually yeah we don't have as many thistles as we normally would the dock is mainly reduced to one or two every now and then um, most of the so-called weeds here we actually specifically plant for cultivation um, and we either use them or sell them, extract them down into powders and move them on. Um, we send a lot of them over to King Island in Barter for soaps uh, from a beautiful lady over there. Um, and she in turn sends things like hides over and we tan them and send them back. It's just a beautiful little community. But it's kind of, yeah, everybody kind of working together. It's um, a real a culture of kind of swapping back and trading and yeah, swapping. Yeah, we all kind of think we're a bit inexperienced, but once we all got together, we, we realised we kind of work pretty well together. How would you describe your approach to farming? Are you, are you farming for profit? Are you farming for lifestyle? What are you trying to do here? Um, we're just trying to live healthier, really. Um, my partner can't work anymore. He's got some health issues. So that Leads to some difficulties um, going back to work, but we'd prefer to stay here, really. There's not much we can't provide for ourselves. Um, we sell the excess livestock to what we don't need, so we raise our own chooks for meat, we raise our own pigs for meat, we raise some breeding stock as well. Um, we breed chickens. Um, we often overbreed, like I do with my plants, I overplant, um, and we just yeah sell them off for whatever it really costs us to raise the animal or you know what it costs me to pot up the plant it's not a huge profit but it pays the bills that we wouldn't have to go and you know back to conventional lifestyle for and that was julie north showing meg powell her tiny lifestyle farm when after a few years of recovery they've spotted their first dung beetle now, a little bit more on results from another company, this time Bega Cheese. The cheese producer has reported $1.7 billion in revenue in the first half of 2024. That's a 3% increase on the same period last year. The company's share price shot up 12% in response to the announcement. Bega Cheese has managed to pay down about 70 million dollars in debt after it sold property in Port Melbourne and Canberra and sold off the company's interest in a joint venture with Vitasoil. In a presentation to shareholders today, uh, Bega Cheese CEO, actually that was yesterday, Wednesday, Bega Cheese CEO Peter Finlay reported a 20% increase in earnings before interest, tax, 
depreciation and amortization. Actually, I don't know what that is. Probably someone can help me on the text line. Compared to the first half of 2023, uh, he said commodity prices had helped improve the company's results. We are seeing a slight return um, of commodity prices. That's really based around, um, it's really been supply-led at this stage. So supply reduction of Europe, supply reduction or supply being turned off out of the US, which has brought back um, some some strength in the commodity market. So it's not demand-led yet. However, we feel that as demand starts to pick up, that could actually accelerate commodity prices further. And that was Bega Cheese CEO Peter Finlay speaking to shareholders today. And it's that time of the afternoon when we have a look at what's happening uh, in the program this afternoon. Joel Reinberger, good afternoon. How are you? Hello there. I'm very well, thank you. Look, first of all, we are going to be keeping our eye on the fire that's burning kind of smack bang in the middle of the state. We'll be uh, talking about that, keeping you up to date with the warnings from the TFS today. Uh, but also today, speaking of fire, are you, are you much of a barbecuer? I love a barbecue. I mean, I usually hope someone else does the barbecue. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, but, you know... I have what, a go. What sort of barbecue? Are you a plate? Are you a grill person? Oh, um, I'm a <laughs> You don't slap, care, do you? No, you don't I don't care. care. Sorry, I'm a slap on the barbecue. <laughs> I hope it works. Uh, <laughs> but, look, I'm, yeah. I'm a grill man. I like oh, to be yeah. able to see well, the I grill marks. I like the, the, grill. the, the yes. blackening of things yeah. as well. Uh, I find that with veggies, because, you know, there's more yeah, and more. Veggies are good. There's more and more veggies mm. around. Mm. And I find if you grill some corn and you grill some mushrooms and you grill some asparagus, things like that, they just go so well and they take so little time and effort mm. to prepare. Uh, and uh, I find the carnivores tend to hoe into those pretty well as well. So, um, but look, we're, we're talking to someone today who uh, works for one of the big barbecue brands. She's their ambassador, and she's just spent a fortnight grilling her way around Tasmania. <laughs> I love it. And she said, and look, this is someone who like makes new recipes constantly and demonstrates stuff for people constantly and runs the YouTube channel for them, etc. And she said the day on Bruni Island was the single best day she's had in her career of doing barbecuing, just because the produce she had to work with was oh, so yes. fantastic. Yes, yeah. So we're going to find out what makes Tasmania a great place to grill. Uh, uh, well, just <clears throat> just on that, um, mm-hmm. zucchini. Oh, I, yes. I'm, that's what I'm eating. Everybody in Tasmania is eating uh, zucchini at the moment, and the way I do it is I chuck it on the barbecue and grill it with the, the grilly bits. Yep. And I have one, probably her, her brand barbecue where you put the lid down. I'll put cheese on top and salt and pepper. Cheese on top? Oh, oh yes. Fancy schmancy. You know, that really fancy already sliced cheese sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the great pre-grated. Ah, um, uh, yep, yep. But I love it. But I was saying to my son the other day, oh, would you like a zucchini from the garden? And he goes, no, thanks, Mum. So I think I've overdone it, you know, in yeah. past years. But I yeah. love it personally. Yeah, look, so do I. But it's lightly grilled zucchini. As soon as it's too okay. heavy, it becomes slop. Same with eggplant. <laughs> too too heavily cooked and it's just gross. Yes. Uh, but a little light grilling, it's a it's a fantastic thing to have on the barbecue. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, this interesting list that's come out. There's a guy named Edgar Wright uh, and he's a film director, British film director, yes. uh, director of the Cornetto Trilogy, 
which is Simon Pegg's films. There's three films he's done with Simon Pegg, which is Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and The End of the World. Um, And he's put out a list of his top ten best films of all time. So we're kind of comparing his list with uh, the list of Graziano Di Martino, who owns Rewind Cinema, who show old movies. Wow. So, so we're going to have That'd a look at this. interesting. Could get some good ideas. So, you know, the top five from uh, Edgar Wright, Raising Arizona, very early Coen Brothers film, An American Werewolf in London, Carrie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Boogie Nights. That's a very interesting top five <laughs> The Coen Brothers, films. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very like, interesting. All amazing films, but for very, very different reasons. So we'll be uh, talking about, you know, your top five films today too, Fiona. Fantastic. Thanks, Joel Reinberger. Thank we'll you. We'll catch you a bit later. Make sure you uh, listen in again tomorrow at lunchtime to the Country Hour. I'll catch you again then. Uh, have a great afternoon. The ABC Listen app gives you ABC Radio Hobart the way you want it. So when the cricket's on, you can follow all the action. But if you want a different option, just choose one of your favourite programs instead. Download the free ABC Listen app today.